You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City, and I'm delighted to be joined by Sebastian Strangio, The Diplomats Southeast Asia editor. Sebastian, how are you doing today? Good, Ankit. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for asking. It's uh, good to be back with you on the show, as I'm sure our listeners will have already put two and two together on this, uh, but we are here to talk about recent events uh, and ongoing events, indeed, uh, in Myanmar. Uh, so on the morning of February 1st, uh, the democratically elected members of Myanmar's ruling party, the National League for Democracy, were deposed, removed from power by the Tatmadaw, the country's military. Uh, the military declared a year-long state of emergency and declared that power had now been vested in the commander-in-chief of the defense services, uh, Minong Lang. This amounts to a coup d'etat, uh, and it occurred the day before the parliament uh, was meant to sw be sworn in. Uh, so this is uh, part of the fallout of the outcome of the general election uh, last year. Um, so, uh, Sebastian, I'm delighted, of course, to have you, uh, given that you are a full-time analyst of this part of the world. And, uh, you know, I know you focus quite a bit on Myanmar. Uh, the place I want to start with this discussion, uh, and, what, and, you know, there's a lot to cover here, but the place I want to start, what I found sort of striking is that it seemed to me, at least looking from the outside in, that a lot of knowledgeable Southeast Asia analysts were somewhat caught off guard by the timing of this coup, right? Coups are never something that one really expects, so they they do tend to be surprising and indeed succeed uh, as a result of that surprise in many ways. Um, and, you know, we I think we've had lingering signs that the military wasn't too happy with its general lack of popularity in the country. Um, how mm. how did you react when you first heard the news? I mean, did, you, uh, did it catch you off guard? It caught me off guard. I mean, you know, one of the things that's that a lot of observers of Myanmar have sort of struggled to comprehend in the wake of the coup um, is why the military would choose to do something like this. I mean, as you know, you know, the previous constitution is still technically in place. The 2008 constitution contains a raft of safeguards uh, of the military's power. Indeed, it was drafted with the specific aim of preserving uh, a central role for the military in Myanmar's affairs. Um, it gave the military a quarter of seats in parliament, um, control of three powerful ministries and other special powers. Um, indeed, you know they are claiming that this state of emergency is, you know, in conformity with the constitution and, and has been, um, and, and so they're they're, you know, they've continued to keep that document. Uh, they haven't thrown that document out yet. Um, but you know, it, it, what a lot of us have been trying to get our hands around the last few days is why the military would choose to dismantle um, or, or choose to intervene in such a way given that the system had, that it designed um, to safeguard its own power and prerogatives had actually been working quite well. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of theories advanced, mm -hmm. um, you know, both political, personal, even psychological, um, to explain why this is happening now. And I think the truth is probably, you know, um, there's probably small amounts of truth um, in each of those explanations. Well, let me let me press you a little bit on that. I mean, you know, being fully cognizant that we're, you know, three days out from this or, or sorry, four days out from this and things are still early, early hypotheses can often turn out to be wrong as we get more information. But what's the explanation that you're most drawn to? I think, uh, you know, that the the explanation that I've heard that I think makes the most sense is that the system that the military created, the electoral system under the 2008 Constitution, was not working quite as it had intended. I think a couple of factors here. One is that the military um, tends to have, you know, tends to overestimate how popular it is amongst the Myanmar public. I think part of that has to do with its own self mythology as the sort of guardian of the union, you know, the one force that has prevented Myanmar from fracturing. Um, this is very central to the Tatmadaw's 
self-perception. And I think, you know, being sort of <clears throat> steeped within that, a lot of the senior commanders in the Tatmadaw were, you know, found it hard to come to grips with just how unpopular they are. Um, uh, I think also that, you know, the specific electoral system that the uh, military chose um, when they drafted the 2008 constitution is a majoritarian system which benefits large parties, over-represents large parties and find, makes it difficult for smaller parties to to gain, I mean, uh, you know, a significant share um, of seats in parliament, even if they win a decent percentage of the vote. And I think that that, you know, after the result of the 2020 election, when the NLD won, you know, another massive landslide, um, Commander-in-Chief Min Aung Lang and other members of, you know, the the military were facing the reality that the system they created, you know, might simply have locked in a perpetual NRD majority. Uh, and I think that his, you know, Min Aung Lang is, there's, there's talk that he has presidential ambitions of his own. I think he was faced with the reality that under the present system, uh, he had very little chance of ever becoming president or holding any other senior cabinet role. Um you know, one could, you know, so, so that that seems to me to make the most sense. But I think there is also, you know, there's also probably, um, you know, an element of peak in the way that the NLD has sort of dismissed um, the military's concerns about electoral fraud. Quite rightly, I would add, they've, they've mm -hmm. offered no real evidence that there was um, any, you know, large scale electoral fraud at the November election. Um, you know, and perhaps the sense that the NLD was sort of, you know, not giving them the respect that they deserved as sort of the, again, the, the sort of the guardian of the union and, and a, an institution which perceives itself to be very central to, um, you know, uh, Myanmar nationalism and the, and the sort of uh, advancement of its of, of the state's interests. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, uh, yeah, I do want to spend a little bit more time on internal issues before sort of zooming out and talking a little bit about the international reaction and the and the regional uh, repercussions. Um, so, sure. um, you know, Myanmar has no shortage of uh, internal security issues. Um, I mean, you know, Rakhine State, the periphery more broadly. Um, and actually, in, in preparing for this podcast, I was actually reading some of your recent writing uh, in the aftermath of the coup. And you made a very interesting point about uh, the coup sort of emphasizing the uh, the core periphery or the center periphery splits uh, in Myanmar. So just, to, you know, to... to to, uh, to push you a little bit on that, I mean, how do you how do you anticipate the um, or at least what do you see as being the primary consequences of this coup in terms of the internal security situation from the northern peripheries uh, to Rakhine and and the um, and the borderlands more more generally? Well, at the moment, it's very difficult to say. You know, um, th there has been some talk that the military is you know um, now that they're back in charge are you know wanting to push forward peace talks with certain groups, but the military has a pattern of sort of dealing with certain groups while waging war on others. And then, you know, um, and then, you know, after a certain amount of time reversing that and, and opening talks with the, with the groups that's previously fighting and then conflict breaking out with the others. So, so there's this sort of sense of divide and rule uh, or this strategy of divide and rule that they pursued for a very long time. I think that we could probably say that, you know, having the military back in charge is not likely to be um, welcomed in many parts of the periphery. I think that, um, you know, e you know, even though many ethnic minority groups and organizations representing their interests have been skeptical about the NLD's, you know, um, you know ability to sort of um, negotiate a sustainable nationwide peace, um, you know, having the military back in charge, you know, the force that is, has been active in these regions for decades, you know, attacking um, ethnic minority communities, committing human rights abuses on a massive scale um, is, you know, is, is, 
you know, will be seen in a very, in very negative light indeed. Um, but, you know, in the longer term, I think, you know, the point I, I made in the article you referenced was that, you know, there really are two, you know, the struggle between Aung San Suu Kyi and the generals, the NLD and the military, which has been ongoing since the, since 1988, really, since the protests of that year, um, you know, is, is connected to, but is in many ways separate to the more complex, um, struggle to, you know, for ethnic autonomy in outlying regions of the nation. Um, you know, from these regions, from the perspective of these regions, the NLD and the military, while they do, um, you know, differ on many, um, many important issues, you know, they are both ethnic Burman dominated institutions. Um, and that, you know, that both have been to, to varying degrees insensitive to the needs of ethnic minorities, um, and the aspirations of ethnic minorities. And so, you know, that I think that this, you know, even if there was to be a, you know, a solution to this conflict between the NLD and the military, uh, d a decisive lasting solution one way or the other, um, you know, uh, uh, if, even if there were to be a democratic solution, it wouldn't automatically solve um, this question of, you know, how the country handles its multi-ethnic reality and, and the sort of the influence of um, ethnic Burman uh, chauvinism and nationalism and, and the, um, you know, the various myths that are attached to that. Mm -hmm. So what should we make of this one year state of emergency that's been declared? Uh, what will become of the NLD of Aung San Suu Kyi? I mean, I know that these are, you know, questions that might um, evade answers this early on, but uh, what's your sense uh, of, of where this is going? I mean, my sense is that the government uh, the military will probably in the long run seek to, you know, re-engineer um, the system that they created in 2008. As I said, they're keeping the constitution in place. The question is whether now they feel, you know, changes are warranted to the constitution to, to give them a bit more of a guaranteed, you know, a bit more guaranteed prominence in the political system. Mm -hmm. So I think it's probably in their interests to, you know, stage a return to multi-party democracy at some stage, but we don't know, you know, what restrictions will be placed on the NLD. Um, you know, there's a host of uncertainties at the moment. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I would say that, you know, a long-term spell of military rule is probably unlikely, but, you know, I also, like many people thought that, you know, didn't expect this to happen, um, as it has. And so, you know, really it's very hard to say. I think that as the next few months go by, we'll probably start to get a better sense of exactly what they intend and are likely to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's always a, you know, I think that's one of the advantages of the podcast format with things like this. Uh, we can just kick around some uh, speculative ideas on something that remains sure, very yeah. uncertain. Um, let's uh, zoom out a little bit and, and, and talk about the international reaction. Um, so the Biden administration has officially declared it a coup d'etat, which has consequences in U.S. law for, for foreign aid and, and so forth. Um, and, you know, there's also an interesting sort of, um, I guess, you know, for someone like Jake Sullivan, who uh, worked this issue under Hillary Clinton. I mean, Myanmar was one of the big successes of Obama's first term in Asia. Um, so now right, it's interesting. Kurt Campbell, yeah. Yeah, Kurt Campbell. I mean, all, all these all these folks, you know, they come back and this is one of the first uh, major crises in Asia that they're dealing with. I mean, you know, on that note, when I was listening to you talk about you know, allegations of electoral fraud. I was I was wondering why uh, the Myanmar military didn't take advantage of the final months of the Trump administration to do something like this when, uh, you know, you know, mm. you know, there would have been a little bit less attention. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but that'd be interesting. Um, anyways, uh, so international reaction, U.S. has called it a coup. Um, I think, you know, people got a good laugh out of the Xinhua 
headline saying that Myanmar had, uh, quote, reshuffled its cabinet um, in, in describing <laughs> the coup. Uh, ASEAN, meanwhile, um, you know, never won, never an organization to spend too much time talking about the internal affairs of its of its constituent states um, is is also, you know, part of this picture. So, you know, walk us through, I mean, what the uh, what the major reactions have been so far uh, and, and what we and what we should expect. I mean, in the next few months, just in terms of the international reaction to this coup. Well, for many Western democracies, it's obviously been, you know, instant condemnation and um, rightly so, I think. Um, what we're likely to see in the coming months is increasing pressure on the generals to um, roll back um, some of the uh, moves that they've taken to, you know, even to sort of reverse the coup and reinstate some form of democratic rule to release um, political prisoners, et cetera. Um, you know, and that that's sort of unsurprising. I think given how much energy was invested in this idea of Myanmar's democratic transition, there's a sort of, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of outrage about the, the, the turn that it's taken. And we could talk about whether, you know, Western governments were too rosy in their assumptions about Myanmar's realities back at the time and sort of were, were the, you know, the bar was set so low that the military was able to, you know, um, uh, you know, um, gain, regain Western support and get the, you know, sanctions removed, you know, through a, through a transition to a system which still retained, you know, preserved most of their prerogatives. Um, um, ASEAN, you know, its statement was by ASEAN standards fairly strongly worded, but, you know, there's always a limit to how far ASEAN is willing to go on questions of human rights, you know, uh, criticizing the human rights records of its member states. And as you say, in turn, you know, interfering in their internal affairs. Um, and so there's not really any surprise there. There could be a role for ASEAN to play in all of this. I mean, ASEAN has, you know, uh, been flexible on, you know, these questions of um, non-interference and, you know, national sovereignty in the past when it comes to Myanmar. I mean, it stripped Myanmar of its uh, rotating chairmanship of ASEAN in 2006, I believe. So, you know, it, it has, it, it could be part of a wider solution. Um, but the problem that, I think a lot of the Western countries are going to face is that, you know, um, Myanmar, you know, is, is likely to have at least the passive support of China. Um, and, and that's going to make it very difficult to rally any sort of international consensus around um, what's happened in Myanmar and any sort of joint international reaction to it. It was notable that the UN Security Council resolution that or, um, or a statement that was released um, yesterday, you know, did enjoy China's um, support. But it was relatively, you know, that China, the support of China and Russia meant that the statement was, you know, relatively muted, uh, certainly much more muted than the statements that have come out of mm-hmm. the U.S. State Department and other Western governments. Um, but I think that, you know, we can talk about what, you know, China's reaction to this coup has been. But I think in, in general terms, they will hoist high the banner of non-interference and right. present themselves once again um, in a pattern that we've seen play out many times in Myanmar as a sort of understanding neighbor and partner who doesn't judge and whose partnership is consistent um, and, um, you know, and solid. Um, And I think that, you know, this this will um, place Western countries, especially the United States, in in a difficult position. You know, they have I think they're going to face a contradiction between the goal of sort of promoting a democratic outcome in Myanmar and getting the generals to wind back the coup. And also the question of the wider strategic question of, you know, China's influence in Myanmar and not wanting to to go down a road that sees 
Myanmar become ever more dependent on China. So, you know, I mean, this this pattern we see play out, we see play out in, in many other parts of Southeast Asia over the past couple of decades. And I think that it's, I think that this challenge starkly illustrates one of the main dilemmas that the Biden administration faces in Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. uh, which is that, you know, um, there's no longer, you know, uh, if there ever was a an international liberal consensus, you know, there's right. an increasing number of countries, both big and small, um, that are, you know, um, pushing back against liberal norms um, and, and, and sort of advancing a very sovereigntist um, vision of international relations in which, you know, um, countries are divided by hard borders and, um, you know, uh, transnational principles, international principles like human rights stop, um, you know, or, or, you know, are subordinate to that principle. Right. So, you know, I think this is very tricky um, for Western governments and it's going to be hard for them to thread the needle um, of sort of condemning the coup and taking effective actions against it while also, you know, trying to secure their what they perceive to be their national interests in the region. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the toolkit here, I think, is fairly predictable, right? I mean, um, sanctions mostly and uh, and uh, strongly worded statements. You know, it's interesting. Right. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm glad we're getting to the China angle of this a little bit later in the discussion, because, you know, a lot of the coverage you read, at least here in the United States, um, has really talked about this coup through, I mean, you know, everything in the United States is now seen through the lens of great power competition. So um, it was a little frustrating to see some news coverage that, you know, sort of put this into a neat sort of, you know, good for China, bad for America kind of um, mm. dichotomy. And, you know, I mean, things, you know, as as we know with the diplomat, I mean, things are always more complicated in Asia. I mean, this is this has been a story that's played out. Uh, obviously, you know, a coup is a, um, is a is a different sort of circumstance here. But we've seen this over and over with with changes in governments, uh, for instance, in um, in democracies around Asia in the past, where there is a change in government and immediately there's a geopolitical narrative that comes out of that. Um, but, you know, I mean, as you mm. as you hinted, I mean, um, this, I think, is complicated. Right. I mean, the Tatmada itself has its suspicions about China and the United States alike. Um, so I think I think that, you know, ultimately means that this won't necessarily shake out into that sort of clear narrative. Right. I mean, you have the concerns mm. around China potentially uh, working with, you know, non-state groups uh, in, in the borderlands in some cases. Um, meanwhile, you do have this sort of test. Uh, I don't really like that term. Um, but, you know, this challenge, I guess, for the Biden administration, which is now going to have to take a big call um, early on about, you know, the extent to which values versus sort of real politic considerations weigh on this particular issue. Um, mm. But, you know, I mean, you sort of, you already shared a few thoughts on how China is going to play this. But, um, you know, I mean, if, if you're the, if you're the, um, if you're the top Madan, and you're trying to, you know, I mean, obviously when you carry out a coup like this, you bake in costs, international costs into what you assume will happen afterwards. And I'm sure they've done that. They've anticipated sanctions, strongly worded statements, mm. and those have come now. But 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 what would you do if you were the top model to sort of maximize your chances of having a better relationship with China in the near term? Because that really seems to be the best bet if, uh, if you know, at least for the next year, um, this is how things are going to be run in Myanmar. I think they can depend on China for diplomatic support. Um, I mean, they've enjoyed it at men on many occasions in the past. Um, they can probably, you know, if they want to purchase arms, I'm sure, you know, they've done that in the past. Um, China is an important economic partner, um, an important source of investment. So I think that they could fairly safely assume that China would be there as it has been in the past. Um, you know, th I think that, you know, the, the relationship between Myanmar and China and, and, the, and the Myanmar military in China particularly has always been sort of, you know, 
fraught with tension. I mean, on the one hand, you have, you know, two groups that that have a lot of shared interests in the sense of sort of opposing, you know, this, um, you know, liberal international consensus and, and resisting attempts by Western governments to sort of force change in Myanmar. You know, China's opposed to that on sort of political and ideological grounds. And the Myanmar military obviously wants to resist pressure to give up power or, or you know, otherwise curb its own interests. Um, uh, and so, but there's also, you know, I think friction, uh, proximity breeds friction. Um, you know, the two nations share 2000 kilometers shared border, um, which, you know, which runs through areas that have been, you know, very, you know, loosely have always existed in a very loose relation to the central Myanmar state, large parts of these borderlands that are in, you know, that are under the control of ethnic armed groups with close ties to China have only really rarely been, have never in some cases been under effective central state control. And I think that, you know, the, um, you know, this is a great, this is a huge source of insecurity for the military. And, and the, you know, the question of China's relationship with these groups, as well as the sort of shadow of its past support for the Burmese Communist Party and the insurgency that it waged in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, you know, is, is, you know, is very much, you know, conditions um, the military's view of China. Um, but, the, you know, China is also a very useful partner, as Aung San Suu Kyi discovered on coming to power. Um, and so, you know, I think that what we've seen in, in Myanmar in recent decades has sort of been this constant push and pull. You know, the two nations have been pushed together by, you know, shared strategic and ideological um, interests. But, you know, there, it's, there's always been an undercurrent of, of, of suspicion on the part of the Myanmar government and, and indeed the Myanmar people um, about China's true intentions in the country. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think that you know, this is likely to continue, uh, even if, you know, China enjoys, you know, a, a quote unquote advantage in the short term, you know, the, the pendulum is always likely to slide back in the other direction. We saw that, you know, after, you know, um, a decade ago when, you know, the, the, the military, you know, dominated government of the time um, initiated an opening to the West, you know, I mean, one of the motivations for that was to diversify the nation's foreign relations and attract foreign investment and to sort of shrug off the pariah status that had clung to the nation for so long. Um, and so there's sort of, there was sort of this, you know, um, you know, and that, you know, there was, there was a lot of tension had developed in the relationship with China due to the sort of the heavy reliance that Myanmar had been forced into. Um, and so, you know, th th there's no like clear, you know, win for China here. It's it's going to be you know there'll be opportunities that arise that Beijing will be very flexible in in seizing, um, <clears throat> but the same constraints um, will remain in place. I think. Right, and you know, uh, before we close out the conversation today, I do want to also give some attention uh, to Myanmar's Western frontier. Uh, right, both India and Bangladesh have, uh, I think, had an increasingly complex and deepening relationship in the case of India and Myanmar, and. With Bangladesh, of course, uh, the primary uh, concern still remains um, the relationship at the Rakhine border and the fate of the Rohingya. Could you just briefly comment on, you know, what we might expect from um, those two, I guess, bilaterals, the India-Myanmar and, and Bangladesh-Myanmar relations? I, I, you know, this is not something I'm a specialist in. I would predict that, you know, India will probably take a more pragmatic position um, toward the military right. government yeah. than it has in the past. Yeah. I mean, you know, India was actually, you know, in 1988 was surprisingly forthright um, about the need for, you know, man, you know, the, the, um, for you know the, the government of the time to respect the 
you know, um, d democratic values and after 1990 to respect the result of the election that was held that year. Um, and I think with the with the rise of China, we're, we're probably likely to see a more, uh, you know, and an increasing Indian concerns about China, we're likely to see a more sort of real politic approach to, um, yeah, you know, to, to, to what's happened there. Um, I mean, that also may reflect the Modi government's, um, you know, illiberal turn also that, right. that, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not so concerned, you know, it's not advocating liberal principles in the way that it might've um, two or three decades ago. Um, but, you know, I, I think in terms of the Rakhine situation, you know, one of the really interesting questions that remains is, is, is whether the, you know, the fragile ceasefire that um, exists in the West of the country between the Myanmar military and the Arakan army um, is likely to hold. You know, and this this was a development that followed the election um, when, you know, one of the, you know, rare sort of good news stories to come out of Myanmar um, was that the, you know, Japanese peace envoy helped to broker this this um, ceasefire between the Arakan army and the, and the Myanmar military. And, you know, with the aim of holding elections that had been called off um, during the November 8 poll. Uh, and, you know, in this particular instance, the one party that was resisting um, this push for elections to be held was the NLD government, um, you know, and I think that maybe in some ways this issue, you know, was an outgrowth of NLD, you know, mounting NLD military tensions. But now that the military is in charge and the NLD no longer has a say, you know, will, you know, is there a possibility of the ceasefire holding some more lasting solution to that conflict? Or will it be, you know, will, you know, the Arakan army, um, be concerned by this lurch back into military rule and, and will it create further suspicion um, and endanger the ceasefire? You know, we, we don't really know, but that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, the only other yeah. thing, the only other thing that occurs to me uh, on at least the Bangladesh Myanmar relations is uh, the extent to which the coup is going to completely um, throw a wrench in the you know plans for uh, repatriating Rohingya refugees, which is never a particularly straightforward process to begin with, but I think now appears a lot uh, a lot less certain than it even was before. Mm. But um, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's that's really remains to be seen at this stage. Absolutely. Um, look, I mean, uh, you know, this is, I think, going to be something uh, that we'll return to on the agenda this year for sure. Um, so, Sebastian, uh, I first of all want to thank you for taking the time to uh, come back on the podcast and talk to me. You know, I was actually reflecting on our conversation at the end of 2020 when we talked about, you know, what what lies ahead in Southeast Asia in the context of at least the, the United States. And, you know, I remember you reflecting on the broader turn in the region uh, away from you know, democracy and universal liberal values, so to speak. And, and lo and behold, we begin uh, 2021 with a coup in Myanmar. So, uh, you know, maybe mm. maybe you did see it coming in your subconscious, even if you, uh, you know, were, right. were still a little surprised. Um, but no, uh, thanks a lot for taking the time. It was really a pleasure. Um, I learned a lot from this conversation. Thanks. Thanks, Ankit. For listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you leave us a review. You can do that on your chosen podcast provider, uh, be that um, Apple, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, anything out there. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, but you haven't uh, yet subscribed, make sure you do that so you don't miss future episodes. Uh, so thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.